Uh, open up to uh, Romans chapter 7 uh, this morning. We're going to be uh, finishing Romans chapter 7 this morning. So we'll start in verse 14 and we'll read down uh, to verse 25, the end of the chapter. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the things I, the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law, uh, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And I, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us this morning uh, from your word. Uh, we ask that you would uh, just open our eyes to, to see and, and understand this passage, but not only uh, see it in an intellectual sense, but that our hearts would be uh, gripped by, by Jesus Christ, that we would see uh, your goodness, that we would see also our sinfulness, and we would just uh, come before uh, the cross uh, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your work. We pray that the spirit would be living and active. And we ask that you would uh, give me the words to say in Jesus precious name. Amen. Uh, Romans chapter seven and, and the end of the chapter uh, is kind of considered uh, probably one of the most difficult uh, passages to understand uh, in the book of Romans. Uh, there's probably at least three different views on this interpretation on how to interpret this passage three main views and then if you start tracking down in all the commentaries you can probably find uh, another two or three more uh, so I'm kind of going to try to sidestep all of the debate and and tell you what I think the passage is saying and we're going to do what we normally do and and walk through the passage however I think it's worth pointing out that at some point in our lives we can all identify with the I character of this passage. We can all identify uh, with this experience of, of wanting to do something that's right, but finding ourselves continuing uh, to give in to sin. Uh, for some of us, maybe that was before we were a Christian. We knew we were doing something wrong. Uh, we knew what we should be doing, but we decided, hey, you know what? I, I'm just going to keep doing this sin, and we had no power to resist it. For some of us, we can also, I think, identify with this experience in our Christian life at times. 
We know what God's word says. We know what the right thing is to do. We, we, we feel the conviction of, of God in our lives. We say, yes, this command that he's given me not to do this or to do this, it's good and I want to do it. And yet we find ourselves in the heat of the moment uh, giving in and yielding to some kind of temptation. So not only is the passage, I think, difficult to interpret in some ways, uh, but it's also uh, it's also just a natural human experience in that respect. It's difficult in that respect that, yeah, we do struggle with this battle sometimes of knowing what we should be doing and and not doing it or knowing what we shouldn't be doing and then going out and doing it anyways. And so as we go through this passage, we're going to find, I hope, a lot of connections, but also an answer to this solution. Our main point this morning is this living by the law leads to constant inward struggle. So if you remember the context of this passage, Paul has been talking about the role of the law. And he'll say earlier, he says, yes, the law is good. The law is holy. But when I hear the commands of God, sin springs to life. It it stirs up sin in me, particularly when I am an unbeliever. Just hearing the word of God, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't lead me to God. It leads me to continue to sin. And I've continued to use the analogy of children when you tell them don't go into the cookie jar and they say, oh, my goodness, there's cookies. It stirs up that desire to give the command. And so there's this continue continuing struggle. Paul also says in chapter eight, and this is where his argument is going in eight, verse three, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law of God does not set us free. It gives us the commands and it points us to who we need to turn to. And that is Jesus Christ. But the commands in and of themselves do not give us freedom. And in fact, when you have the commands and you are weakened by sinful flesh, you go out and you continue to do sin. And this, I think, is what Paul is driving at. Living by the law leads to constant inward struggle. I think, just to give you kind of my overview of where we're going in this passage, I think this is Paul reflecting a little bit as a Christian on what it was like before he was a Christian. He was a good Jewish person. He had the law of God. He understood the covenants. And he tried to obey God. And looking back from where he is now as a Christian, I think he's talking about that struggle. I knew what God wanted me to do, but I couldn't do it. Not everybody agrees with that interpretation, and that's okay. But I'm going to try to walk through and we're going to try to just stick uh, to what Scripture says. So first this morning, you see that the law is good, but without Christ, I am a slave to sin. So look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So the law is spiritual. Paul has already said something very similar in verse 12. If you look back, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul is not disparaging the word of God. He is not saying you don't need your Old Testament 
You don't need the commands of God. He is not saying, throw out those Ten Commandments. I don't even know why we have them. There's a problem with Him. No, the problem is inside of me, not with the commands that God has given. The law is spiritual. It's from God. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, for equipping us for every good work, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says. And Paul will use the contrast in chapter 8 between flesh and spirit. Flesh to speak of who I am when I am enslaved to my sins and spiritual or spirit to refer to the Holy Spirit. We also see this language here of sold under sin. He says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. I do not think if we are following Paul's argument that this can be a description of a Christian. A Christian, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is not sold under sin. Do we have sin in our lives? Yes. Do we struggle with that sin? Do we fight it? Yes. We'll see later on. First Peter chapter uh, 2 talks about us having uh, sin that wages war inside of us. But we are not sold under sin. We are not in captivity to sin. We have the presence of it. But as we've been seeing for all, all through chapter 6, it is not our slave master anymore. So you have Romans 3, 9. What then? Are, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. That language there of being under sin is similar to what we have in verse 14 of chapter 7. It's this idea of sin ruling you, controlling you, uh, being under its Boot. And I know a thing or two about boots for the last two weeks. They are enslaving. Uh, They limit your ability uh, to move. But we are under sin. Romans chapter 6, 6 and 6, 7. You know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For we who have died to, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 18, and having been set free from sin, we've become slaves of righteousness. Romans 6.20, for when you were slaves of sin, and this language here of slavery, you think of the slave markets in the ancient world. And what do you do with the slave? You sell them. You are in bondage. You are not free. And so I think here in verse 14, to be sold under sin is not in this moment talking about a Christian. It's interesting in the story in the Old Testament of Ahab. And you remember Ahab the king and he covets a vineyard of a man named Naboth. And his evil wife, who was probably the most ungodly queen uh, in the Old Testament, tells 
Naboth, why are you upset that you want this vineyard and he won't sell it to you? And she comes up with a plot for him so that he can kill Naboth and look innocent. It's a it's a conspiracy. And so he gets the vineyard that he wants. And then Elijah comes before him and Ahab says to Elijah, have you found me? Oh, my enemy. Uh, I hope none of you, if I come to your house to visit you as your pastor says to me, have I found you? Have you found me? Oh, my enemy. You know, this is this Ahab did not like a man of God. He says, have you found me? Oh, my enemy. And Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Part of Paul's argument then is to culminate here and say that the law, though it is good, could not do what needed to be done. The law didn't free us from our captivity to sin. If anything, it heightened that captivity. It exposed that captivity. It said to us, this is what you should be doing. This is the good and holy commands of God. And, and, it's, and it's kind of like putting a magnifying glass on you so you can see just how bad your sins actually are. The law is good, but without Christ, I am a slave to sin. And so I find the problem is not what God gives us in the law. The problem is what's wrong with my heart. And God in the Old Testament continues to to show his plan is to send Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, he will change the hearts of the people. But we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves this morning. Our second point this morning is this. When all I have is the law, sin within me still controls me. In other words, when all I have is the commands of God, apart from Christ, when all I have is is the statements or the rules, you should do this, you shouldn't do this, the sin that is inside of me still will control and rule over me. So Paul speaks here, I think, in a general sense of a Jewish person armed only with the law. Verse 15 and 16 for I do not understand my own actions, for I do for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. Paul is saying, in effect, you know, I don't know what's going on here. I can see these commands are good. I, I understand them. But I'm powerless to do what I know I ought to do. We kind of sometimes portray this in pop culture with a little angel and a little devil on our shoulders, right? And the little angel says, oh, you really ought to do this. And you remember some of those old Saturday morning cartoons and then the the devil pops up. And for some reason, I always remember uh, the cat Sylvester, you know, and the, the de- little devil pops up and, oh, but you really ought to do this. And then he goes and he tries to eat Tweety Bird uh, again, even though, you know, he knows he's not supposed to and he gets in trouble uh, with the master that, that you never see. Paul has said in Romans two seventeen and 18, speaking of the Jewish person, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And then he goes on to say, you know what? He says, in effect, what good is that if you don't actually do the law? 
But the point here is that Paul describes the Jewish person, even, even in their sin, you know, they're what we might call Bible people. They have their Old Testament scrolls. They're, they're going to, to, maybe not Sunday school, I don't know if they would have called it synagogue school, but they are, they are in the synagogue. They are hearing God's word. They, they are at times agreeing and saying, yeah, I, I should be doing this. I shouldn't be doing that. And yet they continue to sin. I think one of the problems, of course, is that we're not in those situations. We're sometimes not honest with ourselves. You think about how the Pharisees acted and how they they knew what they should be doing, but they just kind of became prideful and puffed up and said, well, yes, of course we're doing it. I think this is Paul looking back at his experience before he was a Christian as a Jewish person and saying, this is who I was. And if I'm honest with myself, yeah, okay, I sort of liked God's law, but I continued to not do it. I could say on the one hand, yeah, yeah, this is from God. This is good. But then when push came to shove, I didn't respond. When you were a kid, I'm sure this has happened to you. Your parents tell you, don't do this. Absolutely not. And then the parents go away. Maybe an hour, maybe two hours, maybe a weekend. And what's the first thing that pops into your head? I know I shouldn't climb that tree. I know I shouldn't jump out of that tree. But how much fun would that be? I bet I could do it. I really bet I could do it. And so we find ourselves agreeing. Yeah, yeah, that's a good rule to have. But then in effect saying, well, you know, I can get away with it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And this is, I think, what Paul is talking about. So Paul talks about, in my flesh, nothing good dwells in me. Verse 17 through 20. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is my, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right and not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. One of the challenges in interpreting this passage is you think about earlier statements that Paul has used to describe our slavery to sin. And and we typically, as unbelievers, do not delight in the things of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, no one seeks God. And Paul's absolutely right. No one does what is righteous in the eyes of God. And he talks about our, our mouths being open graves, our tongues stinging people with our language. And so you can come to this passage and you can say, well, how could Paul be talking about an unbeliever? Because here, the, whoever this person is, it says, he says, I have the desire to do what is right. Typically, as unbelievers, we do not have the desire to do what is right. But I think we need to remember two things. One, even unbelievers have a conscience. No matter how scarred it is, no matter how jaded it is, unbelievers do in some degree and some level know right from wrong because they are made in the image of God. They know what they should be doing. 
They don't want to do it. They don't want to honor God. They want to rebel against God. But we do know what is right and wrong. And sometimes, humanly speaking, we have the desire to do it. The second thing is, and this is part of what leads me to think Paul is reflecting on kind of this experience he had as a Jewish person. If you have the word of God, if you are reading it regularly, if you are opening your Bibles, or as I said, going to uh, the Torah uh, in the Old Testament and going to the synagogue, you know what is right. And you hear it and you can even say in your mind, in your heart, okay, this is what I should be doing. The problem is if you rely on yourself, you and I do not have the ability to do those things that we know we ought to do. We hear the word of God, but it is not in our hearts that we are driven to do it. So you think about the book of Deuteronomy and you think about Moses and he says to the people of God, you know, circumcise your hearts. You're stubborn, he says. And do they circumcise their hearts? Do they turn and change them on their own? No. And Moses and then later Jeremiah and Ezekiel actually have to say, you know, God is actually the one who's going to change our hearts. And he's going to do it in Jesus Christ through what he calls the new covenant. So again, uh, being in my flesh, which he talks about in verse 18, in my flesh, I think this is the unbeliever. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, Romans 6, 6, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, Romans 8, 9, speaking of the believer. You, however, are not in the flesh. And when Paul says that, he doesn't mean about our bodies. Yes, our bodies are flesh and blood. But what he means is we are not, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have the Holy Spirit, those who are driven and enslaved by our sin nature. Do I have the presence of sin in my life? Absolutely. Does it wage war at times? Absolutely. First Peter chapter 2. But is it my master so that I can't Respond to God. No. When you are saved, Jesus is your master and he has put his spirit within you. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And I think that's the struggle here of this person. They, they're seeing God's word. They're saying, I know it's good. I, I, I know what I should be doing, but I can't do it. I find sin creeping up. I find sin taking over. By the way, Paul is not here removing personal responsibility. So, so when he uses this language, for I do not do, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do want, um, or when he says um, in verse 17, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. This is this is not some kind of cheap cop out excuse to say like you know how people say, oh, the devil made me do it. You know, oh, it wasn't really me who did it. No, it, it really is the sinner who sins. Paul's, Paul's not saying, well, you, you can't take responsibility or you're not really guilty of the things that you do. Rather, he is saying, what is driving you? It's the enslaving power of sin. This is just how enslaving it is. I have responsibility for my actions. And I don't get credit 
for wanting to do the right thing. We have to do the right thing. And isn't that the problem with us as sinners? We might see what we should do, but we don't do it. And God doesn't grade before the judgment seat on a curve and say, well, you know, you really had good intentions here along the way. Oh, you you really did want to help that old lady out. You really did walk her across the street there. God looks at the heart. And God says, you did these things in rebellion against me. You knew what you should have done, and you didn't do it. Or you knew what you weren't supposed to do, and you did do it. This is why in our own strength, by our own abilities, by trying to follow the commands of God, we will never get to heaven. Because we can't do it. Because sin dwells in us. The command doesn't take care of sin. It leaves us in this perplexing place of saying, I know what I should do, but I I really don't want to do it. This, I think, in a sense, is the struggle that Israel has throughout the Old Testament. And we could cite uh, numerous examples here of people who knew the law, who heard God's word and didn't do it. David, even as a believer, struggled with this. He knew that he shouldn't sin with Bathsheba. And yet when he saw her bathing on the roof, he did it anyways. It's fascinating in the book of Joshua. Joshua calls out at the end all the people of God. They're going to renew the covenant with God. It's kind of like a worship ceremony where you're going to pledge to be faithful to God. And this is how the story unfolds. It says, now the fear of the Lord. Now fear the Lord, Joshua says, and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers. Serve beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So so remember those gods that that Laban and others were worshiping and the gods they saw down in Egypt. Josiah is saying, put these things away. He says, if it is uh, evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you, you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So, so Josiah says, make a choice. Or I'm sorry, Joshua, not Josiah. Uh, Joshua says, make a choice. And what do the people of God say? Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. That is awesome. You know, they're pledging loyalty to God. He says, for it is the Lord our God who brought us up out of our father, brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord drove us out, out before us, all the peoples and the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord for he is God. I love how Joshua responds in Joshua twenty four nineteen. You are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. How, how's that for encouraging public speaking? Person comes and they say, you know, we're, we're going to do it. We're going to serve the Lord. And he just looks at him and says, you're not going to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. Moses had said very similar things at the end of Deuteronomy. There's the, the blessings and, and the curses. And Moses says, and I know that one day these curses will come upon you because you won't serve the Lord. You look at the book of Judges. And what is continually happening? 
There'll be a, a small revival. God will raise up a judge. The judge will live for a while. They will walk in the ways of the Lord. They will do what they're supposed to be doing. And then the judge dies and quickly everything goes downhill. And you can even kind of track the pattern. Not only is it this circle, you know, then God will send another judge and there'll be a repentance, but it's like a downward spiral. Each time they fall into sin, it gets kind of worse than before. And the judge that that tries to help them out and God uses each one kind of really isn't as good as the last one. You think of of Samson and some of the problems that he had. And then you think of uh, later on, you have some others that have even worse problems than, than Samson. And so by the end of the book, you have this horrible situation where this priest goes into town and the lady that's with him gets murdered. And I don't want to go into all the graphic details, but the point is there's this downward spiral of how bad it is. And this is what Joshua had said would happen. You know what you're supposed to do. God has laid it out. And you don't do it. When all we have is the law, the sin within me continues to control me. You can see this later on in the prophets. And Isaiah chapter 50 will say, Thus saith the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or with which her creditors it is to whom I have sold you? For behold, uh, for your iniquities you were sold. And for your transgressions your mother was sent away. This is when this is a prophecy of when Israel or Judah will be in captivity in Babylon. Israel throughout her history knew the things that she was supposed to do. The problem most of the time was not that she didn't have a copy of God's word. The problem was the heart. And so she's in captivity, sold into it. Even even Daniel, as he prays in Daniel chapter 9, he says, we are here in this bondage in this foreign land because we have sinned against you. Do you recognize where your sins leave you? Even, Even as a Christian, do you continue to understand what sin is? Sometimes as a Christian, the temptation is to just brush off sin. Well, I'm not really that bad anymore. Does the weightiness of the holiness of God impress itself upon my heart? That without Jesus Christ, I am dead in my sins. I am sold into slavery. And any good that I have inside of me is not from myself. It's from the work of Christ redeeming me. And any obedience now as a Christian that I am able to offer is directly the result of the Holy Spirit changing my heart. And so I have nothing that I bring before God of my own strength, of my own ability. Because if I'm left to myself and if I'm left with just the commands of God, I will say to myself, yes, this is good. I should do this. And then I won't. Because sin will rule in me apart from the work of Jesus Christ. So third this morning, delighting in the law is not enough if we are still in captivity. Verses 21 to 23. So I find it to be a law 
that when I do, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Sin here is described as being close at hand. I think it's language similar to Romans 7, 8. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness apart from the law Sin lies dead. And so the law of God, as we said uh, three weeks ago, when you just are given the law, it often stirs up the desire to sin. Again, Romans 7, 9 and 10. uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. For I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. Paul, later on in chapter 8, will talk about two kinds of people. You are either the person who is of the flesh, in the flesh, driven by the sinful nature, and you are enslaved to it. Or you are the person that has the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 5, 6, and 7. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind on the flesh is death. But set the mind set but to set the mind yeah. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. I think what we see in in Romans chapter seven is the mind that is trying to set itself on God's law. And I think it's talking about what Paul experienced as a Jewish person before he was saved. He saw God's word. He wanted to do it. But he still had evil within him. Now, I think as a Jew, he he wasn't honest with himself. He doesn't, before the Lord appears to him on the road to Damascus, he thinks he has all this zeal for God. It's kind of like some of us. When you were living as an unbeliever, you, you weren't bothered by what you did. You just lived your life by your own motives and your own drive. And you didn't care. You didn't acknowledge what certain sins were. You enjoyed it. But now as a believer, you look back and you can say, yeah, but I wasn't following God. And you can maybe even say, you know, there were times I knew I wasn't doing the right thing. But I didn't care. That was sin ruling in me. I did those things that I, that I, I knew were wrong. And I wasn't confessing it because I didn't want to acknowledge that it was wrong. And so, in a sense, I knew what I should have done. But I didn't do it. Because sin lived in me. It ruled me. It enslaved me. We sometimes don't recognize this power that sin has, this enslaving captivity. Paul comes here to the end of this passage and and he just breaks out in praise to Jesus. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is, in, effect, in a sense, breaking out and saying, I need Jesus to save me. He says that 
thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. What can deliver me from this? What can make the Word of God effective in my heart? What can remove this slavery from me, this power that sin and death has? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ had to die on the cross to save you and I from our sins. To liberate us from the enslaving power of sin, Jesus Christ had to die in our place. So Paul breaks out here at the end in worship. And we need to break out in worship and say, praise God who delivers us from this. Praise God that we can walk in a new way through the Holy Spirit. Praise God that now when I read my Bible and I pray and I ask the Holy Spirit to be at work, He can actually give me the motivation and the power to do these things. Will I struggle with sin in this life? Yes. Will I sometimes, I think, feel like this is who I am? I want to do what is right, but I'm struggling against it. Yeah, that is our experience. But Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit gives us a new ability. Let me make four applications this morning. First, without turning to Christ, more and more conviction of sin does not defeat sin. Without turning to Christ, more and more conviction of sin won't defeat sin. What we mean is that the law exposes sin. It brings conviction. Certainly that conviction is good. But I don't rely on the command to change me. I don't, even as a believer, look at God's law and say, okay, I'm just going to try harder to keep the rules. I come to Jesus Christ. I confess and I repent of my sins. And if you have never done that before the Lord Jesus Christ, no amount of hearing the Scriptures, no amount of knowing the commands will liberate you. You will be enslaved. And this constant tension of, I know what I should do, but I'm not doing it. We need Jesus. And Paul says in chapter 8, what the law was powerless to do, Weakened by the flesh. Uh, Actually, you could translate it made unable by the flesh. God did in his son. The solution is not the law. The solution is Jesus Christ. The second application, and I've already been saying this, but I want to spell it out again. Every Christian at some point in their life will struggle with following God. I don't think Paul's eye here in the passage refers specifically to a Christian experience. But just write this verse down. 1 Peter 2.11. It says this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You are liberated in Christ. You are set free in Christ. But the enemy still exists. Brothers and sisters, fight it. Fight it hard. If you're tempted by some sort of sin, turn to Jesus Christ. If 
you need to get help from the body of Christ, know that there are people here who will love you and help you and understand that sin can be an enslaving power, but through Jesus Christ you can overcome it in your daily life. But you will be in a battle sometimes. Christian life isn't going to just be all like smiles and roses and everything is happy and we all walk around and let's all get along. Sometimes you have a real fight against sin. But this is the whole point of of where Paul's argument is going. That in Jesus Christ, when we are given the Holy Spirit, we serve God in a new way of the Spirit. You can win the fight. And it's not because of your strength and your power and your ability. It's because of Christ. And Christ gives the Holy Spirit. Third application. The solution to sin is not more law. It's more Jesus. Paul says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He doesn't say, you know, if I just try harder with the law, I'll get out of this. In fact, he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, For now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. In Galatians, he says this, and the Galatians decide that, that yeah, we've professed faith in Christ, but, but we need to go back to keeping the law, and that's going to be in the food laws and the circumcision laws, and if we're going to be right with God, we've got to obey Him. And Paul says this, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? What do we mean by this? What do I mean when I say the solution to sin is not more law, but more Jesus? Let me give an example. If you're teaching your kids... And your responsibility as a parent is to shepherd your kids, to guide them, to raise them in in the ways of the Lord. Part of that is bringing them to church, and the church helps. But the first point of responsibility is you. Don't just give your kids a list of do's and don'ts. That will not change their character. They might grow up to be really good moral people. But what they need is Jesus. And when your kids are struggling with some kind of sin, and they're struggling obeying you, you do properly take the word of God and say, you know, God's commands say don't do this, and we shouldn't be doing that. But you have to point them to Jesus. You have to give them Jesus. Not only in the sense that you, you, you share the gospel with them and hope that they get saved and, and pray that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but as you are continuing to raise your kids, you're not just saying, okay, now you've believed in Jesus, now let me give you a whole bunch of rules. You're saying you walk with Jesus. And what does that look like? If I can give another example, nothing too specific, but it's kind of sad lately. I've been reading a few stories of people that grew up, like me, in evangelical churches. And I had a really good church experience, and I had a really great youth group experience. 
But more and more, I'm finding out there, there are people that grew up in churches where the church just gave them a bunch of rules. Keep your nose clean. Dress a certain way. You have to look a certain way. You have to act a certain way. And they stressed the rules. And I'm sure the churches had all kinds of good intentions. We want our kids and our children, and we want to grow up to be moral, and we want to grow up to serve and follow God. But just giving the rules, just giving the law, will never accomplish that. I had people in my life, thankfully, that pointed me to Jesus. And I look back, and and I didn't have a bad church experience growing up. But your heart just has to weep for people who grew up in church. And they get fed up with it. And they walk away from it because they say, oh, there's only a bunch of hypocrites who give me a whole bunch of rules and they themselves don't follow it. Do we use the rules and the laws and the Word of God? Absolutely. But you don't do it without Christ. Even as we walk in the Holy Spirit, Christ through the Spirit is the one who writes God's law in the heart. If you had a choice, what would you rather have? Children who have memorized the whole Old Testament or children who know Jesus? I'm making a strong dichotomy there to make a point. You want your kids to know the Word of God. You want them to know the commands. You want them to follow the commands. But you want them to do it because their heart knows Jesus. And as much as that is true for your kid's life, that is true for you. I want you as our church not just to be about a bunch of of good commands from God, but we want to have that desire that comes from Christ that, that we have the fruit of the Spirit of love, of joy, of peace, of patience. One of the biggest rebukes that Jesus has against the Pharisees is that they know God's law. They tithe the the tiniest of herbs, the dill and the cumin. But they miss the weightier matters. Love, mercy, justice. They didn't have the heart that we need from Jesus Christ. And so I'll find in my Christian life, and this is the fourth thing, that I need prayer, repentance, and I need to walk in dependence on God. The only way that my heart is going to be changed is if I continue to cry out for mercy from Jesus Christ and let Christ use the law of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if all I am doing is relying on myself and relying on the command, I will find myself in this position where, yeah, I know what I should be doing, but I really don't want to do it. Jesus uses the analogy, how easy is it to clean the outside of the cup, to follow a bunch of rules and regulations and the law, even good commands, but never have the inside cleaned. And this is what Paul is driving us to. He's driving us to Christ. And He's driving us to the Holy Spirit. Let in your spiritual walk be driven.
to Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege that it is to gather with the people of God. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be more passionate about you, that we would have a desire to serve you and and to walk in in your ways, that we would wage war against the sin that, that easily crops up in our lives, but that we would wage it in the proper way with the proper tools in, in, with a heart that has been captivated by Jesus and, and sealed with the, the seal impression of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And we just praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.